Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Our coverage now continues with the wonderful Laura Coates and the splendiferous Allison Camerata. <laughs> Coates? Camerata? What up? Splendiferous? I, I pay him. Um, Jake, I like it. way to launch with two fabulous sit-down interviews. Those were super compelling, and thank you for giving us a lot of material for tonight. But with, with President Biden, what was your biggest takeaway from that? I thought it was interesting how he um, wouldn't call Putin irrational, but Ooh. said his goals and his speech were irrational. But And you, you saw there, like, when I... I, I guess I misheard or misunderstood or I assumed he was calling Putin irrational after he said Putin's speech wasn't. And he, he jumped in and corrected me. No, I didn't say that. I said his speech was. And I thought that was interesting. He was trying to, trying to parse it a little bit. And I, I'm not sure what the significance is. Um, also interesting that he's going to, he says he's gonna, there are going to be consequences for the Saudis. I wonder what they're going to be. You know, I thought we parsed it out. His point was essentially like, look, don't mistake him for a fool. He's doing this intentionally, and the sanctions or whatever will happen has to come from somebody who he believes is acting rationally, even though it's illogical to many, wrong, amoral, all those things. I do have an issue with your interviews tonight, though, Jake. Is there a reason why you got The Rock as opposed to Splendiferous and Fantastic? Right, right. The Rock couldn't have been happy about that. I'm just, I'm wondering about how that worked, because, Allison, did you want that? Just I put that assu- out there. I'm assuming... I am assuming it's because he's going to run for president and wanted a D.C.-based anchor to establish a relationship with. Because it's true. To (laughs) be, does that make sense? I mean, that's that's the only thing that makes sense. I think. No, but that's uh, that was a good try. That was a good try. Certainly not. Certainly not for brains or looks. I mean, so uh, the, the only thing I could think of is location. Perfect. That's the first rule of real estate and apparently <laughs> journalism. Location, location, location. Uh, thank you. Jake, thanks so much. We can't wait to okay, play guys. all of your stuff. It was great. We'll see you tomorrow night. All right, cool. <laughs> okay. I'll be watching. Um, I am really grateful that Jake gave us all this material because that was very interesting. He had a lot of interesting points that he talked to uh, President Biden about, including the $60,000 question. Is President Biden going to run? Again. Yeah. Because he's given different answers at different times, as you know. Well, it's not just, it's a million dollar question at this point, because of course it's a domino effect, right? If he announces, will someone like Trump announce? Will DeSantis announce? If Biden does not announce? I mean, it's odd. Here we are, less than five weeks away, less than two years into a first term president, yes, two term vice president, and we don't know if he's running again. It used to be a foregone conclusion. I feel like where we are today is a very different world. And I'm wondering if a little bit of it, is it age? Is it frustration? Is it the approval ratings? All of the above. He addressed the age thing, and we will get to that. So yeah. let's bring in our friends from across the political spectrum to talk about this and more. We have with us Andrew Yang, Paul Begala, and Alyssa Farrah Griffin. Great to have you guys tonight. Thanks for being here. Um, okay, is uh, President Biden going to run again? Should he? He should, and I think he will. And, but here's how the dominoes fall. Slightly Ooh. different order, I think, Laura, than the, Laura suggested. If Trump runs, Biden will. Because you saw, Jake said, do you think you're the only person? He does think he's the only person. He didn't say that. He said, I think I can, because he doesn't want to insult 
his vice president or 100 other governors who want to run. Well, whatever. Yeah, uh, And because he did beat him once. He did. And I, I believe he thought that about 2016 when he chose not to run. Um, so if Trump runs Biden, I believe. I mean, he hasn't like called me up about it, but but I think if Trump runs, Biden will because I think he does believe he's the only one. And if he it. doesn't, if Trump doesn't run, Biden is not. Gonna I run think it? I think then it's much more open. But that makes it difficult because he's leaving Democrats in this position where they're not grooming who it's going to be after him. I've been surprised, like whether it's a Pete Buttigieg or Vice President Harris, they're not really putting these people in a position to be the best candidate they could be to run against him. So Kamala Harris has been tasked with border security, a no win situation that I'd argue she's not doing an excellent job on. You know, Mayor Pete, an excellent politician. He's great when he goes on television, goes on Fox News and can communicate to Republicans. But he's overseeing a massive supply chain crisis. He's not doing anything where he has foreign policy experience, which, again, if you were saying this is the future leader of the Democratic Party, you would think the institutions would get behind him and put him in a good place to run. So I worry that Biden waffling on this is going to set the Democrats up for a tough place going into 2020. I mean, doesn't it tell you everything that people would be super excited to talk about it at the prospect of The Rock, Dwayne Johnson running, and no shade to him, but the idea of it, what excites you about a candidate is usually the first thing, and then everything seems to fall into place. If I like you, if I want it to be you, everything kind of falls into place. If you start with the premise that, look, this is the lesser of two evils again, and we've been there, we've been here before, time and again, where... The candidate who's the RNC hopeful, the DNC hopeful, and the public are like, I mean, okay, this is why you come in so interestingly. You've got well, this. Thank look, you. look at my setup. <laughs> Enter Andrew Yang. Enter the party. It's almost like you wrote a book about this about this notion, and you you have a lot of experience here. I mean, that's part of why you think the two party system is problematic in and of itself. Well, I agree with Paul in terms of the dominoes that are likely to fall. I think Donald Trump does declare probably uh, at the end of this year after the midterms. And then at that point, Joe declaring sometime in Q1 or Q2 of next year becomes very, very likely. At that point, you have two candidates whose combined age will be uh, 158, I believe, uh, in 2024. And there's one poll that said 58% of Americans would want to consider an option aside from either of those two people. And so if you did have a candidate like The Rock, who's a capital I independent, has mass appeal, uh, and has a vitality and energy that frankly would be lacking from the two major parties, I think a lot of Americans would get very excited. Oh, I think we have seen Americans like celebrities (laughs) to run for president or for office. I believe we've seen that movie, so to speak. Um, But you brought up his age, and I don't know if our control room has this ready, but it is a soundbite from the president and Jake's interview that I do want to play if we can find it, because he addresses the age. I mean, Jake asks him directly, there are Democrats who think that you are too old, and the president, I think, always hits this one out of the park. I mean, this one he's ready for whenever he's asked it. So I don't know if we have that. You guys let me know if we do. But do you think he hits out of the park, though? Because he keeps being asked the question. And And I almost feel like... The more they have to ask him, and again, there is ageism as a part of this, right? He is going to be, if he were to run again, and you'll do the math for us at that moment in time. He'll be the, the oldest. He'll be the oldest. He'll be the oldest. But the idea here of thinking about just last night, remember Tim Ryan made the point of, look, I don't think he should run, he said, because we need fresh voices. Hasn't, hasn't the Democratic Party, and frankly, the Republican Party, had this conversation time and time again about fresh voices, not the institutional knowledge. I mean, that to me is the conversation. 
Right, and I want to be careful with the ageism thing because it's less his age so much as generational to me. I think that a lot of younger voters, mo- voters, millennials, Gen Zers, they want to see somebody who represents and understands their generation. I mean, Joe Biden's been in politics for over 40 years. He's been on many sides of different issues. And while I'm all for politicians evolving over the course of their time in office, I think somebody who is more representative of, you know, where the majority of the country is just in terms of their generation is something that is kind of both parties would like to see. Uh, Let me just quickly tell you what he said, because we don't have it. But basically, when Jake asked him, you'd be the oldest president in history. And what do you say to people who say that you're too old? And he says, if you think I'm too old, look at what I've done. Look at what I've gotten done. I've gotten more stuff done, he said, than any president in recent history. Well, as the kids say, I coached all my kids in youth sports, right? And you start, John, you know what the kids say when they're winning? Scoreboard. Joe Biden, in only two years, has had the largest investment in the middle class since FDR. He's had the largest investment in infrastructure since Eisenhower. He's had the largest investment in health care since Obama. He's had the largest decrease in the deficit since Clinton. First gun bill since Clinton. Prescription drug med- uh, costs coming down for seniors. The fastest job growth in American history. In other words, he has been the most consequential president imaginable. Not just the oldest. He is the oldest. But he's been but so successful. True, Look at the scoreboard. But Yeah, that, but here's the thing. The scoreboard, and that's uh, it's a great analogy. And by the way, I can't think of a better youth coach. I, mean, the <laughs> I was coach right. of the year. I mean, I'm sorry. No, I'm, I'm, I was, say, I was for the youth basketball league. It helps that my son was 6'3 on the basketball team. Wow. So <laughs> made me a great coach. But you think about all the things you talk about, scoreboard, then why is that not translating for the approval rating? Well, the, the tough thing is that he can give a quality answer. He can point to legislative, legislative accomplishments. But the fact is a majority of voters are uncomfortable with having a commander-in-chief, a president of that age. I mean, it is unprecedented. I think the oldest president before him was 69 at election. And this time around, he'd be 82 to 86. The fact is a lot of Americans are looking up and saying, if I cast a vote for an 82-year-old man, I may be casting a vote for his vice president. Okay, but they so, don't, but they, sorry, they don't mind Mitch McConnell, who's similar age. They don't mind Nancy I Pelosi. Think they the might, well, I mean, they mind McConnell for maybe other reasons. But I'm thinking about Donald Trump. He's not that far behind. Well, they both Biden, are. I, so. I, I think most. I think people have issues with the age. Think Donald Trump's too old and Joe Biden is. I think that we shouldn't have two soon-to-be octogenarians running against each other with no other option. I mean, I hear what you're most saying. Most Americans it, agree with you. Yeah. Yes, but who else? Who do you think could win? Well, so so th- this is the tough thing. I was with, uh, uh, frankly, uh, someone who's going to run for president against Donald Trump in the Republican primary. And the case he was Who making. Is? Um, <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> Don't leave us hanging. I'm sure the, the, the news will come out pretty soon. But, <laughs> like tonight. Um, like on CNN, like breaking news, Andrew Yang? That's, I mean, have you looked around? Where's the, what's but, the news? But, so the argument he was making was a conventional Republican def- can defeat Joe Biden in the general election. And I said, fantastic. A, uh, Generic Republican can't get through your primary and defeat Donald Trump. The fact is there may be four generic Republicans or moderate Republicans running against Trump in the primary and they'll get steamrolled because he has a a stranglehold on, let's say, 50 percent of the primary electorate. So when people are trying to cast about for, hey, maybe we should have new blood, maybe we should have younger candidates, the people that resemble that, if they decide to run in a primary can see the writing on the wall that it's not going to go their way. And on the Democratic side, I don't think they have a primary if Joe decides to, to run for re-election. Let's say that there are going to be a couple of people who would like to challenge him. I think the, the DNC shuts that down. The DNC can't shut it down. The voters will because he's done such a doggone good job. Democrats well, the DNC will try to shut it down. We've got some history. Democrat National Committee has power to shut down Paul, if they open it up, you're going to see a number of people stepping up. And the fact is no 
incumbent president who's had a significant primary challenge has won re-election. Right. Everyone knows that. So like every Joe establishment Democrat will say, look, and they'll be leaned on. They'll say, cannot run against Joe. So you know who might run if they actually have an open process? People are already outside of the establishment. Someone like Nina Turner, someone like Marianne Williamson. And mm-hmm. if you have a uh, just a Nina Turner versus Joe Biden. Nina Turner ends up gathering a significant amount of support just ideologically. And the last thing the DNC is going to want is for Joe Biden to have to debate Nina Turner six times. Uh, so they'll, they'll shut that thing down. How? I think your point yeah. is how? It's a legal ballot. Oh, we're going to all find out together. She, it's going to be a good run. time. But Look, the, the, she, was Bernie's, <laughs> she was Bernie's co-chair. She's a former state senator. No, we, we, yes, we all know we Nina. Know her well. Bernie won nine. Count them nine. You were there, Andrew. Nine contests. Joe won 44. And I think Bernie maybe has more support than Nina. So bring it on. What, what, what the hell are you worried about? I mean, I mean, you're not a Democrat anymore, but I, I am. And as a guy who loves Joe Biden, that's fine. He, he'll steamroll any potential Look, Paul, Democrat I, I and then go on and beat the Trump. the field in the Democratic primaries. And the fact is Joe Biden performed worse in the early states where voters saw a lot of him. And that's just a fact. Iowa, why, New why, New why is that? Why is that? Look, I spoke before or after Joe Biden half a dozen times. And the fact is, when he came off that stage, you know what people were not saying? That guy has the energy, the vigor, the, the like the. And the then all of a sudden president. he developed it. You're missing the most important thing, Andrew. The early states are full of white liberals. They don't like Joe. Then when we moved to real Democrats, African-Americans in the South, they loved him and he steamrolled everybody. Because in my party, the heart and soul of the party are people of color, not pain in the ass white liberals on Twitter. I'm sorry to use bad language. <laughs> I think but, you could touch the button here. Yeah, because, but that's the heart of my party. The Republicans should start with white Christian yeah. evangelicals. Okay. That's their heart. But, but, my party should start with people of color. Well, let's start with the people of Twitter for a moment because oh. everyone stick around because <laughs> we've got a lot to talk about and they want to weigh in and we want to hear from you. You heard Jake's interview. You heard what's going on right now. Do you think The Rock should run? Do you like or do you smell what The Rock is cooking? That's actually the tagline. <laughs> That's how I bring it back. I will. And anything else you want to say to Allison and me within reason, of course, tweet us at Allison Camerata and the Laura Coates. All right. We're going to talk about President Biden's empathy because there was something that he told Jake Tapper that uh, resonates with a lot of American families. He's talking about his son's drug problems. So we'll talk more about that when we come back. We're back now with more from Jake Tapper's exclusive interview with President Biden. Jake brought up Hunter Biden, the president's son, and the legal jeopardy that he could be facing. Our reporting, CNN's reporting and The Washington Post reporting suggests that prosecutors think they could, they have enough to charge your son, Hunter, uh, for tax crimes and a false statement about a gun purchase. Um, Personally and politically, um, how do you react to that? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm proud of my son. This is a kid who got, uh, not a kid, he's a grown man. He got uh, hooked on, uh, like many families have had happen, hooked on drugs. Uh, he's overcome that. He's established a new life. He is, um, uh, I'm confident that he is, what he says and does are consistent with what happens. You know, what I found so powerful about that is there's also a clip that was played on Fox News, and it was with Sean Hannity. Last night. And I, it was last night. Now, we have not independently confirmed and corroborated that this voicemail that was played through Sean Hannity is indeed the voice of President Biden or a voicemail left. We touched the White House to the Biden family, Hunter Biden's family as well, himself. But it sounds like him. It sounds like him. And I want you guys to hear this because it's the way in which it was introduced and I think what the intention was to actually raise the issue. Listen to this. 
We are learning even more about Joe and Hunter's interactions, including this voicemail obtained by the Daily Mail from October of 2018, where Joe Biden is allegedly begging Hunter to get help for his substance abuse. Take a listen. It's dad, I called to tell you I love you. I love you more than the whole world, pal. Can I get some help? I don't know what to do. I know you don't either. It's actually sad. Well, it is actually sad because he then references the idea of applying for a gun and other things in conjunction with it. I mean, look at your faces right now. You're all kind of grimacing a little bit, and I can feel that there was an ick factor there, to say the least, because of how impactful this is across the nation. What, what do you think was the talking point that said, let's bring that up? I remember, if I could jump in on this, telling Donald Trump in 2020 during the election you can go after Hunter Biden for legitimate allegations of wrongdoing. That's fair game. Do not attack his addiction or the way that his father has supported him throughout it. Almost every American family has been touched by addiction. We have an opioid epidemic, any number of issues. My family's dealt with it. That shows a loving father. That shows a loving father supporting his son through the throes of addiction. It is cheap. It is shallow. There's no benefit to even sharing that. I don't know what Fox is thinking in doing so. And it just, it's, it's just honestly an, a gutter kind of move. There was backlash on social media um, from after, after Hannity played that. They said, I don't, th- I don't think Fox News knows the damage they just did to the Republican Party, mocking a loving father desperately trying to reach his son who's struggling, desperately trying to save the only son he has left. It was, mm. Paul, to hear that, um, you do hear the desperation. I mean, to Alyssa's point, it's a universal, virtually a universal experience at this point in terms of knowing somebody or loving somebody with a drug addiction and hearing what sounds like the president's um, desperation. Yeah. And People should know this. Addiction is a disease. It is not a character flaw. Cruelty is a character flaw. And I believe that Mr. Hannity is showing cruelty there and he ought to be ashamed of himself for for dragging a a hurt family into this. uh, Alyssa, I'd perfectly fine to attack him if he he did something wrong. That's fine. What a contrast, though, to at least reported conversations in books. Omarosa, a former Trump aide, wrote in her book that, that Mr. Trump called his son, Donald Jr., a foul-up. Different word. But that we, all, we all remember years ago, but he went on The View with his daughter. He said, well, if, if she wasn't her daughter, my daughter, perhaps, I'd be dating her. This is how he talks about his children. What a contrast with Joe Biden. Now, nobody's running for father of the year. But if you want to talk about parenting, uh, oh, my God, any, any kid in America would be honored to have Joe Biden as her dad. Mm. Yeah, when you asked what would spur them playing that clip, it's just terrible judgment and a lack of moral compass. Uh, And to the extent it was supposed to be a political attack, it actually humanized the president, made him seem like a a caring parent that millions uh, of families, unfortunately, around the country can relate to. So if it was a political attack, uh, it backfired tremendously. And by the way, I mean, it's not as if President Biden, who as candidate Joe Biden was the foil to uh, Donald Trump, who was then president, as the consoler in chief, right? The idea that nearly most of the speeches that Biden will give when he's called to have that empathetic bone showed, it's the idea of the missing person at the table, the empty chair at the table. And so it's not as if President Biden needs help with people believing that he has compassion or that in that instance. So I just wondered about that. And again, opioid, last I checked, they didn't just impact blue states and red states. It is problematic universally. And and again, one more thing, you know, President Biden, then Senator Biden, had to combat the omnibus drug bill and the idea that at the time he did not view 
drug use as anything but criminal. And this buttressed that argument. Anyway, just food for thought. Look, he defended the Capitol on January 6th, everyone. But former officer Michael Fanone says that his fellow cops literally turned their backs on him. He's going to tell us more about that after this. All right, so we've been talking a lot, I mean a lot, about political hypocrisy. Because we have a lot of material. There's a lot of material, Allison, a lot, and probably still more to come. And the focus for far too many seems to be, well, power, never principle, which is, for many, the problem with politics. So joining us now, someone who's experienced this all firsthand, former D.C. police officer Michael Fanone, who, as you know, defended our Capitol on January 6th. He's got a brand new book out today titled Hold the Line, the insurrection, and one cop's battle for America's soul. You know, this book is incredible. And the culmination, thinking about all the conversations that we've been having over time, that we've heard you talk about, to see it all in paper, to see it written, it's astonishing. When you felt you felt compelled to write it, tell me why. I mean, the main, well, I'll tell you that the main reason was I got tired of uh, trying to get out... Um, you know, to have substantive conversations about things like January 6th and my experiences and also policing and police reform in, you know, 60 or 90 second sound bites, uh, which, I mean, unfortunately is you know, kind of th- how things work in uh, the cable news arena. We didn't so, notice the yeah. soundbite world. So I was, looking, I was looking for like a longer form, like a, a larger or a, a different platform to, uh, to kind of compile all those thoughts and, uh, and get it out there. And you yeah. say some things in here that even though we have been talking to you for a year or thereabouts, I haven't heard before. So let me read an excerpt from the book. One of, them, one of the things that you bring up is basically how after you started telling the truth mm. about what happened, your colleagues, some of your colleagues turned their backs on you. And you say, it was not lost on me that most of the venom came from white cops. Black cops, for the most part, were supportive. From them, I got handshakes and hugs. Most white cops avoided eye contact. A few literally turned their backs. What's that about? I mean, that was just an observation that I made. You know, again, like, uh, you can draw your own conclusions. But I can't. What is that? Meaning that the white cops were supportive of what happened on January 6th? I don't know. Uh, To be completely honest with you, uh, I don't know. I mean, I know that obviously there were a lot more uh, white cops that were um, like hardline Trump supporters, not just people that voted for Donald Trump, um, much like I did because we saw uh, the opposition to law enforcement from the Democratic Party in the post-Ferguson era. Mm. And so, um, you know, for me, 2016, I was a single-issue voter, and my issue was law enforcement. Uh, I saw the rhetoric that was being used by not all Democrats, but some Democrats. And I saw a direct correlation, you know, much like rhetoric that's being used by Republicans today and the violence that's ensued. I saw violence being committed against police officers. And we saw a surge in police assassinations in the immediate aftermath of uh, Ferguson. You know, we had the you assassination. The of, of Mike Brown, that's your referencing, the, the riots that, that ensued after that in Ferguson, Missouri. Correct. Okay. Yes, ma'am. So we had officers that were assassinated in Dallas, Texas, officers that were assassinated in Louisiana, 
assassination attempts throughout the country and then here in New York City. Uh, I mean, I went to the funerals of those officers and the effects that that had on police officers uh, was chilling. Um, I mean, it was, you know, an environment where you felt concerned about putting on the uniform and going out into the public. But that was now your book points out and a lot of the jumping off points comes around January 6th. And you mentioned that the, the former comments that you believe to be attributed to Democrats, now Republicans are saying it. I mean, what is it like knowing that you were on the Capitol? These are lawmakers. That some of the comments, the frustrations, your honesty about just telling what you saw that day created backlash that made people want to forget this defund the police conversation to silence officers, disrespect and harm them. What is that like for you, having that? I mean, it's outrageous, but... I mean, I've come, unfortunately, to expect that from, you know, our political leaders. I mean, specifically now, obviously, we're talking about Republicans. But people like Kevin McCarthy, who I think viewed me as an inconvenience, Hmm. um, you know, it it didn't fit the traditional Republican narrative that uh, Republicans are for law and order. Republicans back the blue. They back police officers. The Republican Party, uh, as an institution, doesn't care about individual police officers, Um, You know, the Republican Party, I think, like most politicians, cares about public safety because public safety is an issue that people vote about. They don't vote about individual officers. And so, you know, the Metropolitan Police Department, the officers that responded to the Capitol that day, the U.S. Capitol Police, we're an inconvenience. Uh, We didn't fit the narrative, like I said. And so, you know, we were uh, set aside. And then in a lot of situations, um, we were attacked by, you know, the alt-right media, um, and even some of, you know, what you, I guess you would describe as like mainstream conservative media, like Fox news. Um, I mean, I was parodied for my, you know, testimony before Congress and, um, and they talked about other officers and, and our response that day is having been a failure. Is it that you didn't, you know, stick to the narrative or that you didn't stick to the talking point? Like you didn't fit it? But you didn't stick to it because it seemed like, and that was a lot of the conversations we've been having with people over time and hearing, is about the way that there has been a reaction, not just in law enforcement, but for those who are members of Congress, those who are running for office, who want to say and speak the truth about what happened on January 6th, you're not praised for that. You're punished. Oh, absolutely. I mean, because right now the Republican Party is held hostage by Donald Trump. And Donald Trump supports those who went to the Capitol that day um, to participate in an insurrection. And so Republican lawmakers have to walk that fine line of uh, not um, angering Donald Trump uh, and also not being seen as anti-law enforcement. And so what they've done, um, for the most part, is just ignore us, Uh, choose not to um, address the issue at all, which is cowardly. Um, and then you've had a few of, you know, what I call like the tinfoil hat squad, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Paul Gozars, the Andrew Clydes, you know, people that have made some of the most outrageous statements about that day, saying that it was a peaceful protest, uh, that these people were patriots. I mean, these weren't patriots in any sense of the word, not even in the most traditional sense. Most of these guys, when you look into their backgrounds, they were criminals. They were people that had prior arrests for drug trafficking. They were people that had prior arrests for spousal abuse. These were not people that you would typically see held high by the Republican Party as American patriots. They were misfits. They were morons and they were malcontents. 
But those are the people that flocked to Donald Trump and his, you know, bombastic approach to politics. And they were the people that were easily manipulated and turned against uh, true patriots that were the police officers that were there that day and the members of Congress that were doing their job. Such a great point, Michael. I mean, just because you carry a flag doesn't make you a patriot. Um, it's always fascinating to talk to you, and your book is really fascinating as well. And it'll be things that people have never heard about that, was go- that are going on with you behind the scenes. It's called Hold the Line. Thanks for talking to us about it. Great to have you here tonight. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Yeah, I really you. appreciate it. We have so much more to talk about. So you heard Jake's interview where The Rock said that he is seriously, he's seriously considered running for president. But he's, well, he'll tell us when, okay? But we asked you, do you think The Rock should run? Here's what Vincent has told us already. The Rock would not only be the people's champion, but the people's president, and I'm here for it. So that's a yes, I think, Laura. I think it's a, oh, heck yes, about that point in time. It's not the first, I mean, I'm, you know I'm from Minnesota. So the idea of a former wrestler. You like that. I mean, you like I'm You understand saying, it. You're familiar I understand. With it. I can relate to the Jesse Ventura notion of it, mm-hmm. and The Rock certainly has surpassed that. Anything else you want to say to Allison and me right now within, I got to keep clarifying. Anything else you want to say to us within keep reason? Keep it clean keep is what she's clean, trying to say. All right? Because, you know, we, we do have Fano next, but he's leaving soon, so we yeah, can't have that he'll, happen. He'll beat you up if you don't. Will, will you? It's possible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tweet us, Allison Camerata and the Lara Coates, everyone, coming up. <laughs> All right, she's won an Emmy, she's won a Grammy, and everyone has an opinion about her. Hmm. What did Lizzo do now? Just like Cher, Madonna, and Beyonce, Lizzo is famous enough to go by one name, just like the Laura Coates, even though those are three words. Um, She's a Minnesotan too, by the way. Shout out to Minnesota. That is good. That's very cool. So she's a singer and a musician. She's a proud, confident black woman who seems to push a lot of buttons for some people. Just this month, she's upset everyone from conservative Ben Shapiro to provocateur Kanye West. Why? Let's bring in our panel. Nayara Hawk is here. She joins us. She's a Democratic strategist who worked in the Obama White House. Also here, Mara Escampo. She's one of TV One's hosts on Last Words. And Alyssa Farrah Griffin is back with us. Ladies, great to have you here. Thanks for having us. So, Alyssa, I love this all-women panel, by I the love way. It I love it, too. I'm just telling you right now. I love it, <laughs> too. This is where we need to be. So, um, Mara, I find Lizzo so appealing, truly. Like, I find her physically very pretty. I find her so captivating, like, when she talks. She's very charismatic to yes. me. So why is she pissing people off? Well, you know, she seems to piss people off simply for existing. You know, she rubs a lot of people the wrong way because it's almost like they expect her to be miserable and self-loathing and perpetually because dieting. Because she's heavy. And so, yes. And so the fact that she owns her status as a fat black woman, those are her words, not mine. She loves herself. She thinks she is beautiful and sexy. That seems to bother a lot of people. And it ties to this larger issue of fat phobia, which seems to be one of the remaining areas of society where people think that they can comment on other people's lives. And mm. it's, it's disguised as this concern for their health. But meanwhile, lots of other overtly unhealthy behaviors are not publicly cr- criticized. People smoke cigarettes in peace all the time. You mean like but when Jillian li- Michaels did it? I mean, there, remember the, from the, one of the hosts, The Biggest Loser? I'll come back to this point when she made the comment. Well, 
here it is when she talks about the idea of why don't people celebrate her music and commenting from a place of concern. Remember this? And I love that they're putting images out there that we normally don't get to see of bodies that we don't get to see being celebrated. And um, why are we celebrating her body? Why does it matter? That's what I'm saying. Like, why aren't we celebrating her music? Because it isn't going to be awesome if she gets diabetes. Well, I want to ask you. I'm just being honest. Like, I love her music. Like, my kid loves her music. But there's never a moment where I'm like, and I'm so glad that she's uh, uh, overweight. Like, why do we, why do I even care? Why is it my job to care about her weight? Now, she does come back, though. I want to be fair. She did, she got a lot of flack for that comment. And she came back to address that. I think it was on Twitter when she said this. Do you see it up there? It was Instagram. Instagram, Twitter, do I sound old now, the gram? (laughs) She addressed it on social media, defending herself in some way, didn't really go all that well. But I mean, just the idea of thinking about the why. I mean, you wanted to jump in as to the why. Do do men get this? I mean, do men get these comments about it? And here's what she said on Instagram, but do men get the comments, the fixation on how they look? No. No, and, and let's take a look at this panel and how we've all come prepared and looked a certain way. I guarantee there are other men on here not nearly as concerned about having everything exactly the right place. And that's what I found so refreshing about Lizzo. And I, I had a hard time with her at first because I, I was like, I don't, I don't understand. Like, wait, she's, she plays the flute and she can rap and she can do splits and she's <laughs> heavy. Like, this is a lot that I'm absorbing right now. But the part that I, I realized I was struggling most with was her radical self-love because she showed us that you should love yourself for who you are right now. And that was not something I was used to hearing or even experiencing because I'm constantly in that face of, of, I can be better, I can do more and be better. And she's like, love yourself right now. Embrace it. And that really seems to bother people. Let's agree right now to stop calling her heavy. First of all, I'm telling everyone this right now. She does, she does. She does. Yeah, she does. But but here's the issue. I mean, and we mentioned the flute, one second. She got she got hate for the flute. Well, she got of. hate for pl- sort of. She, she got, got hate, hate for, for playing twerking, the flute for twerking with James Madison's. <laughs> so she's not done. She's a fan. Way she worse with really James Madison's. I, I know his flute-minded this moment. <laughs> Here's the moment. Uh, so she was. She's such a great musician, and she's a classical flautist. Okay, so she was here playing. And I think, it's hard to see, but at this moment, she gets this rousing applause, and then I think she... It's a crystal flute. It's a crystal flute, and I think you're going to see that she twerks. But, I mean, it's it's truly, that's it, okay? The end. The end. It was like a one-second thing, and, um, you know, Ben Shapiro, who's a well-known conservative, said that that was sort of degrade. He said, um, again, I'm correct. Lizzo's performance wearing actual clothing in the Library of Congress was delightful. That was something different. Twerking with pieces of American history is, however, degrading and vulgarizing, and that's the clip the media celebrated. I don't know about the media, but um, why is he so bummed out? <laughs> I Honestly, it's worth watching the Ben Shapiro thing if you haven't, because it seems like a parody. Like, if Western civilization is so fragile that Lizzo twerking with James Madison flu is going to throw you into a tailspin. Like, we should just call it a day. But that moment, actually, I loved it so much. The thing about her that's so captivating is her confidence and her excitement. And you could tell she genuinely appreciated the history of it. None of us, I bet, even knew that James Madison had this flu until she went to the Library of Congress. By the way, a black woman going to the Library of Congress, playing a flu of a former slave Under a black librarian of Congress. Under the first, I believe, black librarian of Congress. That's a cool, powerful American moment. I'd argue a conservative should be proud of it. She's a success story and something we should be proud of, but... It has a way of triggering certain people. I don't know what it is about her. I love her. I'm 
Lizzo all day long. She's on the she cover is. of Vanity Fair, by the way. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's also having, res- having to respond to Kanye West, who wanted to weigh in on her as well, because, you know, his opinion is so invaluable. Well, he talked about her weight <laughs> as well, and he said that, you know, um, basically that why is being overweight the new goal? And she said, oh, he said it's demonic. Um, but basically he said it's demonic that people are promoting that. She said, I'm minding my fat, black, beautiful business. <laughs> But also, I mean, Kanye West is making this point about her health, right? He's saying he's concerned about her health when this is someone who is clearly neglecting his own mental health. So why does he have a right to comment on what she is doing with her body when she is bothering nobody? apparently America loves to hear from people who want to pick on black women on television. Mm. That's right? a sport. That, it's a national that, sport. That is part of that, right, of what we're seeing here is that she represents so much of what is complicated about America's moment right now and our history that her even celebrating and, and being in awe of playing James Madison's flute had people saying, well, you know, why aren't we celebrating a white person playing his flute? And like, it's, you know, let's put some context here, right? At the founding of our country, James Madison said that revolutionary principles were against slavery, yet he brought slaves to the White House, right? So this is part of what she was unpacking in that moment and should be celebrated for that experience. Is this the moment we should plug my social media? Is people going to attack another black woman? No? You think so? <laughs> I don't think you need to plug are, it to get no, those You're getting you lovely comments. Well, you know what? I'm going to tell you something. Lovely. Here's the lovely comment for Lizzo. I think we can all agree. I'm so glad about your artistry and your talent. Full stop. Everyone, thank you. Speaking of talent and Full appreciation. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, what I was did Mitch McConnell say? I was, I was waiting for this segue. <laughs> what did Mitch McConnell say in response to Trump? Well, hurling some insults to his wife. And can tell you about he it play next. a flute? Can, I don't nope. know. Mm-mm. We'll find out. I actually, maybe he can. <laughs> he can. So Donald Trump recently took to his social media website to, well, to insult Senator Mitch McConnell and level a racially charged diss at his wife, Elaine Chao. Trump referred to her as McConnell's, quote, China-loving wife, and these are his words, Coco Chao. How insulting. And he also said that McConnell has a death wish, which, as you can imagine, is particularly dangerous rhetoric at a time like this. Well, today... CNN caught up with Mitch McConnell, and when he was asked about Trump's comments about him, and of course his, his instance, McConnell said, quote, I don't have anything to say about that. Now, he then was pressed further, not to take out of context, he was asked more about the racist comments about his wife, which McConnell did not want to respond to that specifically, apparently, but he did say, the only time I've responded to the president, I think, since he left office is when he gave me my favorite nickname, Old Crow, which I considered a compliment. And after all, it was Henry Clay's favorite bourbon. How's that for Kentucky? I mean, I gotta say, the the idea of him not commenting, at first blush, Allison, is kind of like, why wouldn't you comment? Why wouldn't you respond in some way? He's insulting your wife. She's a member of his cabinet. Then it's almost maybe a, is it sort of a kick rocks? Yeah, it's that he doesn't want to poke the bear. And I understand that. Like, not no good comes from picking a fight with Donald Trump. However, isn't there a way to just take the high ground and say something to the effect? I mean, like, I think Mitch McConnell missed an opportunity because he could have just said, I consider it low class to insult someone's wife or someone's spouse. That's it. Like, he doesn't have to say Donald Trump's name. But I just think that just walking away and pretending that didn't happen, I don't know if that's the most effective thing or mm. if it stops Donald Trump from then insulting you in the future. Tell us what you think. What is the right response if someone insults your spouse? 
You can tweet us at Allison Camerata and at the Laura Coates. And everyone, next, big sit down with Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Not with us, with Jake. <laughs> Would he ever consider a run for office? Seriously? Yes. And what is it about celebrities that make us think that, well, maybe they'd make great presidents or great governors or anything else? Dwayne The Rock Johnson may want to run for president. Check out what he just told Jake Tapper. I have heard now um, from both sides of the aisle of the most influential people in politics asking if I would run, hoping that I would run. And again, it's so moving, man, and surreal. I don't know anything about politics, but the most important job that I have is daddy. And my two whys, um, why I have to take that off the table of running for president. One is six and the other one is four. I, I totally respect it. It's beautiful. But kids do age. That's not closing the door for, you know, in 2040, they'll be, uh, well, even before then, 2036, they'll be in college. Um, uh what about them? You're not closing the door forever is what I'm asking. No, not at all. I, w- I wouldn't do that. I just, like, thank you for asking that and for clarifying that. No, right now, um, for my daughters, uh, it's important that I'm home and that stability is important for me to be there. And, um, and that's the most important thing to me. Well, he's running. That's what I heard. Oh, oh, sorry. Is there, is there a show going on still? I'm sorry. I was mesmerized You're for a moment right. there. Sorry, I'm going to blink a little bit. Did I blink? You. It was a moment. Let's bring in our next guest, John Berman, Stuart Stevens, and Nayara Huck. I mean, I of course, I'm joking a little bit about the idea of it. But look, first of all, if he's a, sitting across from you, he he had a je ne sais quoi. I don't even speak well, French. And by, I'm by that, French is that French for neck? Uh, he had like an enormous <laughs> neck. I'm talking about Jake. No, no. Uh, he was, was the rock was huge there. You know, I was thinking about it. Was it intimidating for you for a moment? Um, it was uh, exciting more than intimidating. Because I get the excitement part of it. <laughs> I feel like this whole segment went left. What I could be one day, well, right, depending where he else. runs. So he would be. The first professional wrestler no. as a candidate, right? Uh, Jesse Ventura. Linda McMahon ran the WWE, yep. and she ran for office. He wouldn't be the first action hero in office. Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, did that. So it's, it's sort of like there is a well-trodden path down this road if he wants to go that way. So it's not a can. I think with celebrity candidates, the question is, should? Good. I knew you were going to say that. Mm. I know you so well. Um, we have a graphic of our, you know, our various dalliances with celebrities who have successfully made the mm. transition into politics. And what you'll see is that they're all, oh, well, this is them dressed as politicians. What I wanted to see was them in their characters because, you know, many of these guys are these kind of superhero types in their characters, you know? And so like Schwarzenegger or The Rock, um, Ronald Reagan, a cowboy, you know, like they they play these kind of big masculine American heroes, Stuart. And I have to admit, I'm susceptible to this. I'm very susceptible. I understand why people like this, because you think in your head, 
well, they're big and strong and successful. Why couldn't they be president? And it's like somebody goes, oh, well, they know nothing about the legislative process. Who cares that they need to know about three branches of government? Like, I'm very susceptible to that, but I think a lot of Americans are. Well, people like people, but we should remember Ronald Reagan did do bedtime for Bonzo. So it was not like all... uh, Cowboys. Yeah, super macho um, characters. But look... um, a lot more people read People magazine than they do uh, foreign affairs. And, and so, I think that people are drawn to them. They have a certain charisma. And I think they can be great candidates. I think they can be great in office. Look at Zelensky. Um, and, and Reagan had great moments as president. Um, and would The Rock make a great president? I have no idea. Uh, neither will many Americans, but they would vote for him, but right? The, the fundamental question is, like, what, why would he run for president? Because I think, it, you know, I did so many races for so long, and I think that the essence is what is the logic behind this campaign? Why are you running? And with Donald Trump, it was so transparent. He was running because he wanted to be president. I mean, for his, he, ego. his ego, he would have been a Trotskyite if that would have helped him with the Republican the Republican Party said, we'll give you everything we have if you'll take us to power. They cut that deal. So but I mean, I hear, also, is that right? I mean, is that all you mean? He also had the appeal of being rude and being anti-politically correct behavior and sticking it to people, right? The idea that he was, you know, going after the system and doing things his own way. So there there was an appeal that it was not about himself. But don't you also, Nira, just just on the celebrity front, think he also had an appeal of being a multimillionaire and being successful and being a TV star on a big show that that's why a lot of outsider And also name recognition. It is the number one thing that local and national candidates have to fight for is just people even knowing they're running for office. So if you run and people know you're there, that makes it so much easier to get to the next level, right? Getting the fundraising, getting the the talking about policy or not talking about policy. But it's not enough on its own to actually get elected. George Clooney had talked about running in Kentucky as senator. His dad is well known there politically. He's had a challenge, right? Matthew McConaughey. So the celebrity alone is not enough. You need the retail piece of it. You need people to feel drawn to you and connected to you. And then people as voters need to feel like they can trust you in a crisis and not just about your own But ego. I wonder, a part of it, I mean, what we're speaking of, if you take a step back, is the idea of what we expect from our politicians more broadly. Because I have a feeling, if you look about it, think about it, I mean, just recently, Kevin McCarthy's discussion about the commitment to America, contrast that to Newt Gingrich's successful 1994 contract with America. He was pointed out, McCarthy, as having not a lot of substance, not a lot of meat on the bone. Are we requiring, I mean, are we requiring more from a celebrity to have a full platform before we take him seriously? That's not required of many people who are in office right now. Well, no, it's not. And I think that's partially thanks to to our our two friends over here who sometimes run candidates as outsiders and and praise the idea of someone without experience or Washington experience or governor experience running for the job or going for the job. And sometimes celebrity candidates have that by definition. They're like, Mm. oh, I've never done this before. So that's a good thing. Somehow our society doesn't value experience in the people who run our country as much as we do experience in people who, you know, who run companies or teach our kids. Well, right? and our and star in movies. It's sexier, John. It's sexier. You don't, don't you think The Rock would make a great president? I, I think he'd make a very big president. <laughs> I do. He'd be huge. No, look, I, I, I would like to hear what he would run on or okay. what he details, would do. I don't want to get too serious. John, honestly, if... Tom Brady ran for president. You would vote for him. I know that. Yeah. If Tom Brady <laughs> ran for 20 yards, you should yeah, probably vote for him. Right. Tampa Bay he won't be doing that anytime you soon. You know, he could run for president easier than he could run for he, 20 I'm yards. Just, I'm just going to point, and I was, a, pa- I was a Patriots fan now. I got to look down to, uh, that there. But the point is, 
Think about this. We're talking about the requirements of the person who is supposed to be, by our founding fathers, it's never supposed to come down to one person. In many respects, the president was supposed to be, in many ways, a bit of a figurehead in the whole three-party, three-branch of government system supposed to work together. So why couldn't somebody who doesn't have experience be in that world? Well, Well, usually... Particularly when you end up with a pandemic, right? Like, why why have somebody who understands how to actually move PPE from one division to another? Like, why why would that be necessary in our country? But it is a a weird fact of politics that usually the most inexperienced candidate wins in a presidential race. Is that right? Yeah. Hmm. And there's a lot of arguments as to why that is, but it has something to do with, I think, an American sense that you will bet on the hope, that you will bet that this person could be. Whereas if you have a lot of experience, you're more tarnished. But in you're, the moment you've, of You've crisis. cut a lot of deals that were awkward. You've Look, I, I don't think that's a good thing, but it's an interesting thing. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, obviously, Joe Biden, uh, you know, def- defies that. But Donald Trump, certainly. Clinton, Bush, yeah. um, you know, Reagan, Carter. Um, but Clinton and Bush ran deeply on their what they did for their their states, right? There was still an expertise and an experience there. And they Bush, an executive branch. And in the crisis of 9-11 and the Iraq war, Bush was reelected, mm. right? So in the moment of crisis, people want stability. And what represents stability? Experience, right? The, we can trust you, your known quantity, which celebrities can also bring that known quantity, right? That, that says Or you Oprah. think you know them. You think you Bingo. know them. They're untested. You, you mean, see them in a scripted universe. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see how The Rock would be in the unscripted universe that is politics. That's right. And Allison would like to interview him personally. Yes. Call us, Rock, (laughs) if that is your real name. (laughs) Um, Everyone, (laughs) stick around, please. It's not. (laughs) You may think you've heard it all from Herschel Walker, but you have not heard yet what he has to say about cows. And it's a lot. I've been telling this little story about this bull out in the field with six cows. And three of them are pregnant. So you know you got something going on. As we just told you, Mitch McConnell does not want to respond to Donald Trump's insults about his wife. So we ask you what someone should do in that situation. Here's a takeaway from Twitter. One person saying, this man would do anything for power. Look at his track record. He supported Trump and now... He is paying for it. I would have my wife's back, but Trump insulting people's wives seemed to be okay in the GOP. Ask Ted Cruz. I mean, it's a fair point. We've seen this before. It's not a novel thing. In but the Ted sense Cruz of, did respond. He did Ted respond. Ted Cruz did respond. And initially. said that it was basically something to the effect that it was low class or that people shouldn't. Oh, yeah, don't you dare about. say yeah. anything about my, you know, he got really angry and shouted on it. Uh, and then, you via know, Twitter. Yeah, that, that, that anger. But the point is, the anger didn't last. That's no. that's the whole attitude about right. the notion of it. I mean, the the idea that you're going to have a um, steadfast response when you're running and then, I guess, all spare and love and politics. I mean, you know, it's kind of the no hard feelings philosophy on Capitol Hill that to the average person is stupid. I mean, I, I don't know how many people get over the things that they do on Capitol Hill. I mean, I live in the real world, but Capitol Hill is very different. Indeed. So anything you'd like to tell Laura and me, please do so. You can tweet us at Allison Camerata and the Laura Coates. OK, now on to Herschel Walker. He just gave a new interview to ABC News where he talks about the claims mm-hmm. that he paid for an ex-girlfriend's abortion. He also talked a lot today at a campaign rally about pregnant cows. Back with us now. 
bovine expert, John Bourbon, Stuart Stevens, and Naira Hawk. Um, so, uh, okay, first of all, uh, Stuart, I guess I'll start with you. Um, we'll never really know what happened with Herschel Walker and his ex-girlfriend. I mean, we can parse it. She says, obviously, one thing, she has various bits of evidence. Um, he's denying it. It's a personal matter. We will never really know. We also, I'm not sure, will know entirely what he meant by this story. So let me play for you all his story that he really wanted to tell about pregnant cows. I've been telling this little story about this bull out in the field with six cows, and three of them are pregnant. So you know he got something going on. But all he cared about is kept his nose against the fence looking at three other cows that didn't belong to him. Now all he had to do is eat grass, but no, 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 he thought something was better somewhere else. So he decided, I want to get over there. So one day he measured that fence up, and he said, I think I can jump this. So that day came where he got back, and he got back, and as he took off running, he dove over that fence, and his belly got cut up onto the bottom. But as he made it over on the other side, he shook it off and got so excited about it, and he ran to the top of that hill, but when he got up there, he realized they were bulls too. So what I'm telling you, don't think something is better somewhere else. This is the greatest country in the world today. Well, he's got my vote. No, um, no, no, just first of all, second and third of all, um, I was talking a story, who's the heifer in this story, number one, about the three cows? Number two, I think the phrase is the grass is green on the other side. But this is a man who's been <laughs> talked about of having multiple children yeah, outside three, of marriage. The three, the three cows, women. I was worried where he was going with that. Well, so was Tom Co- You just saw, Allison, the SNL skit in its pure form. That's what I want to ask our guests. John, I'll start with you. What was Senator Tom Cotton's thought bubble during that story? He was saying, you know, save me. He was, he was looking around. He was looking at Rick Scott. It was over there. How is this going to end? He was dying to know what was going to happen to this bull. The, the, the grass is always greener like the bulls have or the cows have whatever on the other side of the fence. I'm just so confused. I'm getting dumber by the minute thinking about trying to translate that. Is it really that hard as a person running for elected office to not say the words pregnant, baby mama, uh, absentee fatherhood? Like, why? Why does he continue to volunteer these segues that automatically go to his personal life when we've got things like the economy to talk about? I mean, you can go toe-to-toe on other policy issues. It's just he's drawing this attention to himself in in some psychological moment that I really don't understand for any of us who've ever worked on campaigns. And I think that's what the, the two folks there to support him were thinking, like, just get back on track. Stuart, Stop what was the thought? Look, I mean, this, this, this should be put in, like, a, some sort of time capsule of a perfect moment that says what has happened to the Republican Party. You, you have Rick Scott up there who, you know, pled the fifth like a zillion times in the largest Medicare scandal ever. You have Tom Cotton, who actually could be a serious human being. He went to Harvard. He served in the Army. But he's there. But they cut this deal that they would do anything for power. And once you do that, once you say that, well, everything that we believed we don't care about, once you go with Donald Trump, once Donald Trump is president, why not Herschel Walker? So, you know, this is Mitch McConnell's doing. He's the one that picked these candidates, really. Mm-hmm. He could have, he, Trump 
said, we'll take these. McConnell could have stopped it or tried to stop it. He just went along. And this is well, what happens. This well, is, is, why is he running? He's running because he'll be he'll give them power. He's well, running. Hold on. Let me, let me just say, though, I mean, I don't want to leave it. It's this story is obviously very colorful and it's there's room to make fun. But he also had an ABC interview tonight. And I want you to respond to this narrative at the other end of it, because he was talking about really what he was joking about. In part, he was questioned about all the discussions and all the women who have well, the women that he has come um, out to and talked about the notion of whether he was an absentee father, et cetera. Here it is. I know initially last week you were saying you weren't even sure who the woman was. But Which just is be, true. But at this point, you now know who she yes, is. Yes, yes. Did you ever have a conversation with this woman at any time about an abortion? No. Did you ever, to your knowledge, give money to pay for the cost of an abortion? No. Is she lying? Yes, she's lying. Yeah, she's lying. Yes, she's lying. And just to be absolutely clear, I know in the past you have said sometimes that there are things you don't remember. In this situation... Well, that, was, that was before, uh, that was like, what, 20 years ago? Yes. So in this current situation, yes. are you saying a flat-out denial to any knowledge of an abortion? Or is it flat possible out denial, it happened no, and you don't Flat-out denial, lie. Lie, lie, lie. And you know what's sad about it? He had, uh, what was it, a receipt and had a check and had all that. He hadn't shown anything. And showing me having a, saying something about an abortion. And that's that's what's terrible. Mira, he he's he's dug this hole for himself, right? He's the one who made the idea of absentee fatherhood a, a central tenet of why he's running for office. His own son has come out saying that this is true. This is part of his life story. And he's being run by the establishment Republicans with the support of white evangelicals in the state against a reverend, already who's senator, another black man who absolutely embodies the family values that we've talked about of the Republican Party of yours. So it is a very cynical play of putting uh, uh, putting up two black men to run for Senate and suggesting that because one is supporting a specific set of policies, he is of, you know, morally equivalent to the other one. Look, he I don't know. Allison, you said at the beginning that we'll never know the truth here. He's taking a political risk because he's got this problem with whether or not he's got this problem with being authentic on the abortion issue, whether or not he's a hypocrite. And now he's leaning into the honesty issue and he's laying down a marker four weeks before the election saying this woman is lying. And that's a long time for more articles. Look, to come I mean, out. John, that's a long time for look, more people. To isn't come the out. real story here? This has nothing to do with why Herschel Walker isn't qualified to be in the U.S. Senate. I mean, the guy is a ridiculous figure. Who, who in the United States Senate is going to walk over and say, you know, I really want to hear what Herschel has to I'll say about this. You know, I mean, this is a seat that Sam Nunn had. You know, it, it, it's just such a degradation of what politics is. They're interviewing him in a weight room. And, and he's, he's, he's lying. There's not seven people in America that believe he's not lying. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's not the people who support him. The point is, that. right, there's a balance of power. The only reason the Democrats have a majority is because they've got a tie-breaking vote of the vice president. So is it a matter of, look, I, I don't care who's there. If you're a Republican wanting to reclaim the majority, good enough. And we're five know. weeks I, out. I, I think that these things... Um, they taint a party. If a party absolutely stands for nothing, so down that you'll go with Donald Trump, you'll go with Herschel Walker, 
it really just sort of... Are they really the same to you, Trump and Herschel Walker, though? You, you've made that point twice. You, do you really equate, equate them as similar figures? Yeah, of course, because neither one of them, they were both vanity candidates. They're both running because they want to be something, not because they want to go there and do something. And, and, and you know, they, they both are people who can't really put together coherent sentences. They're both people that are never going to really know anything about issues. And it's all about them. It's me, Herschel Walker. It's me, Donald Trump. It's not about you. It's not about the voters. It's not about serving. It's about something I can be. I'm a star. Both of them are stars. And this is, this is where you end up. And well, you know, the, the interesting thing is, for all you're saying, the race in Georgia is much closer than what that alludes to. We're talking more on this in a moment. Should The next question, of course, is should children, and this came out today. I don't know if you saw this, Allison. Yeah. And it was, as a mom... Interesting to think about what this means. I mean, the, yes. the question now is, should children as young as eight years old be screened for anxiety? I and mean, that's what an influential medical task force is now recommending. And I've got questions about what that means, having an eight-year-old daughter. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering what the answers will be. We're going to talk about it next. Yes, and if they are anxious, then what? Mm. That's coming up. growing concerns about a mental health crisis in America after, well, more than two years of the pandemic. You know, now for the first time, the influential U.S. Preventative Services Task Force is recommending screening for anxiety in kids ages eight and older. The recommendation applying to really all children, not just those with a diagnosed mental health condition or who are showing symptoms, but all children. The question is, is this a step in the right direction? Let's talk about it now with Dr. Jeff Gardere. He's a board-certified clinical psychologist and an associate professor at the Toro College of Osteopathic Medicine. Also back with us, John Berman and Nayara Huck. I mean, I have to tell you, I, I have an 8-year-old. I have a 9-year-old. We're, we're all parents here. And I just wonder immediately how this works. Is it that now every well check, every physical, you test the child? For anxiety, what does that even look like? Yeah, well, this task force, they made recommendations. And it's not just from the ages of 8 to 18, but they talked about the importance of psychotherapy. They talked about the importance of making sure that you have the right testing, even with the testing, that you ask the proper questions. What are the right questions to figure out if an 8-year-old is anxious? And why are more 8-year-olds? <laughs> I mean, is this social media? Why are 8-year-olds anxious in this country? Well, what we do know is 7.8% of children between the ages of 3 to 17 years old have some sort of anxiety disorder. So this is real. Uh, and that uh, may express itself through uh, things such as a generalized anxiety disorder, agoraphobia, panic disorder, uh, Phobias. So these are very real things. The kinds of questions that you ask, uh, are you nervous more days than none? Uh, do you feel that when you're around other people that you may be fearful more days than none? And part of the screening is asking the question in a way that the children do understand. So this isn't just about the checkup from the neck up, one type of screening. They're looking at different sorts of tests, but as well the right questions to ask when they're getting their well visits, seeing the uh, pediatrician, working with social workers and uh, nurses in schools. So this is up to us once they make the recommendation. You talk, I mean, doctor, one of the things, and I think 
one of the lasting consequences of not having had discussions about mental health in this country for so long and the aversion to talking about it. Is there are parents out there who think, by virtue of even asking those questions, you're leading your child to think something. If I introduce this to you, suddenly it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Can you speak to why that is a fallacy, if it is? Yeah, and, and the studies show and the, the task force, uh, they do talk about this. They're looking at, is there any harm in asking these sorts right. of questions? Is there harm in doing the research? Is there harm in once you give this uh, that the child may be affected in the way and th- that you said? Uh, and they're saying, no, they do not see this, not from this age group of mm. 8 to 18. But they don't have conclusive evidence that there is no harm for kids from 7 and below. And that's why they're sticking mm. with the 8 to 18. But let me tell you this. This is a step in the right direction. After the pandemic, we've seen an increase in anxiety. Uh, We've seen increases in depression. Uh, Kids going to uh, pediatric emergency uh, services for suicidal ideation. The fact is that the pandemic has hurt all of us, but it has really affected our children, not just the academics, but the psychological. And so this is something we should have done before the pandemic, but now we see the importance of it now. Why to have, I mean, to have a baseline in part. I mean, Nara, you and I talk about our kids all the time and the idea, I mean, you have a two-year-old. I mean, for the last two years, masks has been a part of her life. And I wonder, do you have, you think about this idea of how it's impacted and how you may have changed from one child to the next? I had a child who went from three to five in that same period of Mm -hmm. time. And at three, he was outdoors playing with friends and learning about social interaction and how to deal with emotion and process that. And that just disappeared. And he was locked in his house with his sick pregnant mama. I mean, it fundamentally changed his personality until we were able to get him back in school. And I'm glad that he's in kindergarten and happy now. But these are pivotal moments in our children's lives. And we've spent so much time, I think, as a society worried about academic benchmarks that we have forgotten the idea of emotional learning. And we've seen this as adults in dating. We've dated emotionally crippled people. I'm like, this is, <laughs> this is where you start solving How the problem. How do you know so much Have we? Have we, Nara? Uh, maybe maybe a little projecting here. A little projecting. <laughs> we, uh, we'll turn to you. But yeah. the idea, <laughs> the idea on the that subject of emotionally crippled, John, what do you yeah, think about this? Like, <laughs> the idea that we have to add, like, right, like asking our children and teaching them how to talk about their Agreed. feelings Absolutely. and emotions, this is necessary. The, the suck it up buttercup is not a message I want to be mm-hmm. giving to an eight-year-old. And John, you have teenagers, and I totally see this with, teen- with teenagers. Yeah. But um, I was surprised by how about this about younger kids. But what are your what's your take? Well, if I talked about them, they'd kill me. I mean, so, so uh, no. What I'm curious about, and from sitting next to you for for a bunch of years, I, you've as a society, we've done so much work destigmatizing mental health right. and caring about mental right. health and being aware of mental health. And I think we're much better. All of us are much better at that. But I do wonder if it becomes uncomfortable, though, when all of a sudden we're talking about our kids or our younger kids, if we're not quite as comfortable asking those questions. Asking them if they're um, anxious or just admitting that they might be anxious? Yeah, the idea that an eight-year-old might have Well, but a lot of times we are in denial about our kids, and one of the things that the task force does say, and I agree with it, is prevention. 
Uh, and if it's not prevention, it's about early intervention. And the quicker that you do that, the better the prognosis will be. Let's be aware that there are some states, uh, you know, we're talking politics here, right? There are some states that are saying, keep out of our uh, kids' heads. We don't want to talk about social emotional learning. We don't want to talk about our kids having possible psychological challenges. It's just the academics. And that's the absolute wrong thing that we need to do because we know school is not just yeah. about reading, writing, and arithmetic. It's also about learning interpersonal skills mm. and who they are. And we only have a few seconds left, but what should you do if your child is anxious? What Get, is the solution? Well, the most important thing is, uh, you know, hooking them up with the school counselor, uh, having the pediatrician or, you know, a child psychologist or social worker talk to them. Again, the quicker that you address this, the better it will be, because if you don't, the chances are much, much higher as adults that they will not only stay with that kind of anxiety and develop some of these other anxious sorts of uh, issues, but also becoming depressed, too. Mm. Friends, thank you. Thanks so much for the conversation. Really important. So today we lost a legendary star of the stage, screen and TV, Angela Lansbury. And as Laura has been teaching me today, part of Angela Lansbury's legacy is that she starred in these movies that are now part of America's political lexicon. And she's going to explain all of that. The great actress Angela Lansbury was nominated for an Oscar in Gaslight in 1944 and The Manchurian Candidate in 1962. All these decades later, you know, the titles of those two films have become part of the modern-day American political lexicon. Angela Lansbury had an eight-decade career in movies and TV and on stage, and she died today at the age of 96, a few days shy of her 97th birthday. You are a true Angela you have Lansbury. No, idea. no, I do know because you brought this up. You <laughs> insisted that we talk about her today on the show. You have been a fan, it sounds like, I for have, a long time. You gotta understand, like, maybe some kids' Saturdays were spent, like, playing. My Saturday nights, me and my parents and my family, we watch the old movies. You talk about Gaslight, you talk about Hitchcock, you talk about any movie. And I'm like, yeah, I'm named after the movie Laura, not oh, Dr. Shivago, the movie God. Laura. Yeah, you're impressed. Fun the fact. Point, the fun <laughs> fact about it, you know, is though, think about it. Why this is so impactful is we've heard these phrases all the time. You're gaslighting somebody, the Manchurian candidate. And I think we've gotten so used to it being a part of our conversations. You, you have no idea. It was Mrs. Potts from Beauty and the Beast, people, for those of you who are younger kids. But the point is, the whole premise of it, because look at this. Look at this scene from the Manchurian candidate. And you tell me if you don't see some parallels to the conversation as to why people are talking about it. Listen to this. I told them to build me an assassin. I wanted a killer from a world filled with killers and they chose you because they thought it would bind me closer to them. But now we have come almost to the end. One last step. And then when I take power, they will be pulled down and ground into debt for what they did to you. And what they did in so contemptuously underestimating me. This is a whole scene, people, mind you, about her trying to ensure that she can use someone to take over the government. And here's how that phrase is taken over. A Manchurian candidate, enter Merriam-Webster definition, please, to psychologically, excuse me, no, 
to, um, to, this is the wrong definition. Here you go. A person, especially a politician, being used as a puppet by an enemy power. The term is commonly used to indicate disloyalty or corruption, whether intentional or unintentional. You've been hearing it, but it's just not there. There's more, Allison. Oh. Gaslight. You've had so many people talk about, you're gaslighting people. I'm gaslighting this person. We'll enter this movie with, of course, Angela Lansbury, oh, Ingrid Bergman, and not Bergman, Ingrid Bergman, everyone. And also, not you, but the other one, and Charles Boyer. Here's a scene, and the whole premise of this, you're following along, is somebody is trying to turn this woman crazy. That she's not really seeing what is so obviously mm. happening. The dimming of gas lights in her home. Watch this. I will. Nancy, did you turn the gas up in there? Turn it up? No, why? Well, I thought it went down in here as if you had. I never touched it. But this went down. Well, perhaps Elizabeth lit another jet in the kitchen. Couldn't have been her, Mum. She's been in bed for an hour. I could hear her snoring. In other I words... I never touched it. <laughs> Oh, you've got an accent. I love it. Uh, you know, actor. I mean, obviously, frustrated actress. Extraordinaire. But the point of this in the scene, also, is the notion that someone's, you, you know what's happening. You're perceiving it. Here's the definition. Again, enter the dictionary. Thank you, Angela Lansbury and Ingrid Bergman. Um, it is to psychologically manipulate a person, usually over an extended period of time, so that the victim questions the validity of their own thoughts, perception of reality or memories and experiences, confusion, loss of confidence, self-esteem, and doubts concerning their own emotional and mental stability. Everyone, the legacy of Angela Lansbury (laughs) in those two films is why we talk about it politically today. This is all very familiar, these terms. Uh, Let's bring in our panel. They're back with us. (laughs) Um, John Berman, I mean, you've been gaslighting me for years. That's what I was going to say. As soon as she was reading the definition of gaslighting, Alice was like, oh, oh now I know, I know what this is. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, I just, her performances were so stunning there. The Manchurian Candidate's one of my all-time mm. favorite movies. Which one, the original or the Denzel one? There's only the original. I'm sorry. Okay. The, the original is so good. And, and she was only three years older than Lawrence Harvey. She was, she was playing his mom. She was only three years older in real life. And she's so diabolical. For, for people who only know her as Jessica Fletcher, was that the name for Murder, Just She Wrote? Murder, yes. for, as for Murder, She Wrote, or Bedknobs and Broomsticks or Beauty and the Beast, where she plays these nice people. Yeah. She Mrs. was Potts. so diabolical, so convincingly evil. I got that. That was scary. Yeah. But it's also the idea that, do people even realize they're, they're talking about that? I mean, the connection, the intersection, we're talking about celebrity candidates and why we, we intersect our politics and our pop culture all the time. It's almost laughable. People are like, oh, is that where that's from? Yes, you're talking about these movies. And it's the 40s. So she was also deeply political. Um, family mm. is very socialist. And she tweeted even in her... Uh, older age saying that I am an actress and I am a socialist. So she owned, yeah, she owned, her father uh, was the socialist mayor of a part of uh, a part of London. She came here during the Blitz. And so she escaped, uh, you know, the the horrors of what we saw happening in the world wars. Um, But she started to resent the idea that she wasn't getting picked in her 20s for glamour girl roles. Mm. She was being picked as mothers. And she talked later about how she found a power in that because it though the mother roles were really complex. They weren't just the pretty little ladies, mm. but it was weird. In her 20s, she is playing significantly older women, but mm. she found so much depth in that. And my favorite fact about her, her and her husband at the height of their careers 
took off and left Hollywood to help their two children recover from heroin addiction. Wow. Like All they canceled their careers for years. That. that is fascinating. To Ireland, right? Mm-hmm. That is A farm in Ireland. Fascinating. Stuart, any thoughts on her? Um, look, I, I think the way that our political uh, lexicon intersperses with popular culture is something that um, is, is a positive thing because I, I don't think politics should be separate from the popular culture. And if you look back, you know, it was such a shock, like when Bill Clinton went on what, a senior hall and played the saxophone. This was considered undignified, you know. And by the end of the campaign, George Bush would have, like, you know, played in a band anywhere in America. Um, I, I think that's good because people feel more connected to this, this thing called politics. It shouldn't be some separate little uh, isolated technical thing. It should just breathe in it. Now, there's dangers in that when you have these celebrity candidates that don't really want to do anything. Um, but for the most part, I think it's part of what it means to be, you know, alive and today and... Well, thank you. You mentioned Arsenio Hall. We got to do this for a second. Who, who, who? (laughs) Yes. But thank you for showing me the beauty of Angela Lansbury and her buried career. I just knew her as the neutered know-it-all from Murder, She Wrote. That's what I remember. The neutered know-it-all. That was the TV critic wrote about Murder, She Wrote, and I thought it was the funniest description, really, I ever read. Well, there she is. It only lasted two years. You know that? Think about that. That shows only two years. And yet we think about it all the time. There she is. All right, everyone. uh, It's time for you to sound off. We're going to read your tweets next. All right, social time, Allison. A bit of a lightning round. I want to know what we have from the world of Twitter. Okay, let's start with this one on Lizzo. Not one white person cared about a slaveholder's crystal flute until a black woman played it. Fair. Nobody even knew James Madison had a flute, a glass flute. A crystal wanted that. That's what a crystal. No yeah. comments. Move on. Yeah. Next one. This was on McConnell. Allison, it looks like someone is responding to your take All on right. McConnell's response, maybe a lack thereof. It says, I like exactly what Allison said as a way to react to someone criticizing your spouse. Something like, I don't think it's right to criticize instead of saying nothing. John, did you just tweet that? <laughs> That's exactly what I did. <laughs> I was going to say, my wife has a lot of uh, experience with people criticizing your spouse. You know, ask <laughs> That's her. Right. That's, That's right. Good. I feel for her. I do. Uh, okay, so from the box office to the ballot box, here's someone criticizing my take, I feel, on The Rock. You all can't be serious about The Rock running for the highest office. Shake my head. Why would you all want someone who himself said, quote, I know nothing about politics to waste our time and run. Dems will lose in 24 due to this kind of nonsense. Because he's strong. And... <laughs> And big. That's why. I would like to see him on the debate stage and to see how I, you know, how how he reacts in that environment of having to, you know, go toe to toe with other people. It, it listen, actors. It, there's a big element of acting on that debate stage. Yes, great point. Politics is performance. Mm-hmm. But, okay. Strong is one thing. I I want a candidate in all facets who is going to get the job done. Oh, I thought you were say who was handsome. Here's another one. Well. That might get the job done. From one superhero to another, a viewer asks, does John Berman ever sleep? What is the Allison answer? wrote that. No, John? I did not. What is the answer? <laughs> not enough. Not enough. There's, there's the turnaround between now and New Day is like, I have to wake up in three hours. <laughs> You're getting delirious. Yes. You're actually I'm delirious. laughing at the notion of We it. love that you come on for us. We really appreciate this, but we don't know how you're doing this. This is better than sleep. Okay. Fantastic. Love it. Hmm. Um, you're lying to us. It's like a dream. Wow. Oh, God, I got to put some He's boots on. He's actually delirious right now. I think he might be. Watch some movies tonight. The Manchurian Candidate's one of them. See what I did there? I saw that. You love yourself, Samantha Lansbury. 
I like the movie. All right, you know uh, where you can find us, at Allison Camerata and at the Laura Coates. Okay, thanks for watching, everybody. Laura and I will see you tomorrow. And thanks, you guys, for being Thank here. You. Really great to talk to all of you. John, go get some sleep. Our okay. coverage continues, everyone. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.